This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org pets. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Airway. And we talk a lot about local food on this show and on this station, for sure. Um, it's discussed in so many cookbooks, too, and in our food dialogue today. However, I, for one, can't really start my day without a cup of coffee or tea, perhaps. And I know a lot of other people feel the same way. Um, today we'll be talking all about why all the complex reasons behind our cravings for such things as coffee or tea or whatever we are craving in our diet um, as a society and how much of it has been greatly shaped by the aspirations of political tensions and dependencies and power dynamics of the British Empire. Um, today I'm joined by the author of Taste of Empire, How Britain's Quest for Food Shaped the Modern World. And it's a book that traces 20 meals over the course of about 500 years in, in history um, over the British Empire, and um, how these stories have greatly set the stage for the modern Western diet, and perhaps much more. Um, I'm joined by the brilliant, acclaimed historian, Lizzie Collingham. How are you? Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Fine. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much, Lizzie. And where are you joining us from today? Uh, um, my garden shed in my, in my near Cambridge, where I work. Cool. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for thanks for speaking to us from across the pond. <laughs> Glad we could get you. Um, so so let's talk a little bit about this whole over overall thesis of your book. Um, why did you decide to sort of portray this uh, the history of the British Empire through the lens of food and certain twenty meals? Well, oh, it's a really long, complicated answer. <laughs> okay. and I always find it kind of is a bit dry. But basically, I, I mean, I, the basic idea is that the way a society secures its food supply or chooses to secure its food supply has a powerful impact on its structure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that seems really obvious if you're hunter-gatherers or, you know, those first cities in Mesopotamia, they were founded on settled agriculture. Mm-hmm. And it's not so obvious anymore in modern societies. Modern societies are overlain by politics and economics, and they obscure the fact that food actually still structures a lot of our, the way we get our food mm-hmm. still structures a lot of our relationships. And, you know, Britain, over the 450 years that I span with, you know, in the book about the, with the empire, it started off as a more or less self-sufficient country. You know, it imported some yeah. luxuries like wine and raisins and currants. In fact, they imported so many currants from Italy that the Italians thought they were using them for dye because they couldn't believe that they could be eating so many. But basically, you got most of your food from the, from the fields around you that mm-hmm. you grew yourself. But 
But then, as they start, as the British start looking outwards and going across the seas, they go in quest of, of food. That's what they're looking for. There's spices in the East Indies, the cod in Newfoundland, um, tea in China. And they start going and looking for food. And then there's a lovely story that Audrey Richards, who's an anthropologist in the mm-hmm. 1930s in what's now Zambia, tells about seeing some some Bemba boys from the, the, the Bemba tribe okay. playing. Bemba boys. And one of them mm-hmm. pretending to be the white master. They're pretending to be white Europeans. And he's sort of lounging around in a tangle of, of rope and pretending to be a chair. And he says, oh, bring food, bring food constantly. And one of the little boys, who's pretending to be his servant, says in the end, you can't ask for food again. You know, this is just outrageous. The Bemba only ate once a day. And so there's constant demand. And he says, mm. oh, you don't know anything about white men they say boy bring me food all day long and that is a comp- is a beautiful metaphor for what happened with the british that they sat there and and cried out to their emperor bring me food and by the first half of the 20th century the working classes are effectively fed by the empire so the wheat for, for their bread comes from canada chilled beef comes from argentina new zealand sends lamb and butter and cheese and so relationship and the way their relationship with each other and the way they shop changes, the way that they, the British become more industrious, um, their relationship with the rest of the world is completely altered by this quest for food. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of a very long answer to why yeah. I approach it that way. It's a very big picture question. So but, um, and it, this book <laughs> covers a lot of territory. Um <laughs> Geographically and, you know, historically. Um, But yeah, it's really interesting that, um, you know, you write that in 1939, Britain depended on food imports um, more than 50% of its meat and 90% of its fats and cereals came from abroad. That's a huge, that's a huge change. Do you think that today's food system in America reflects or has been inspired by this global trade that they've sort of implemented or began? Well, Britain kind of sets up, I mean, the, mm-hmm. the British Empire is, you know, a huge force for globalization. It's one of the forces that, that can, it creates all these food webs and webs of trade and connections between all kinds of people who don't even, who aren't even aware of each other and so mm-hmm. on. So it sets up a network which carries on. I mean, of course, in America, you know, those early colon- 13 colonies on the coast, they all rely on that trade. So um, the British set up plantations in America because they want them to produce um, tobacco and sugar in the West Indies and foods that they can use, raw materials. Mm-hmm. And then they, they become places where they can send their manufacturers to. I mean, at one point, even tombstones in America were being <laughs> imported from Britain. Right. So it's about trade and mm-hmm. global, global reach. I mean, I think America, in many ways can be self-sufficient because it has such a wide climate and and a variety of foods that can grow within its own uh, national borders. But it also looks outwards and trades, you know, lots of foods. And and you get these crazy things where people import, in in Belize, for example, they import tapioca in in packets from somewhere else, despite (laughs) the fact that cassava, which is what tapioca is made of, grows in the forest. And so I think America also has that crazy thing where you're importing foods and exporting foods, and it's sort of become very jumbled and there isn't a very direct line anymore between what we eat, 
what we grow. Mm-hmm. So I, and I think the British Empire starts that. that. Yeah. It is ironic. You see that irony in America's farmlands where there's no local food that is accessible. There's, you know, only big supermarkets with like Chilean grown, you know, avocados or. Uh, exactly. I think it sort of gets. And that, I mean, in some cases, I mean, certainly in Britain, it's, it's, you know, it can be better for you if you. It, well, it can be better for the environment if you import your tomatoes that are grown in the sunshine in Spain rather than growing tomatoes in Britain, which have to be under a glass house. And so you're using up more oil, actually, mm-hmm. if you grow them at home. But then there are, you know, I, I don't know, do they eat Chilean um, avocados <laughs> in, in California where you could yeah. produce, um, it, yeah, it's kind of avocados a crazy kind of a, system. Yeah, a crazy system right now yeah. <laughs> in themselves. That's another whole topic. Um, so, Lizzie... The, Well, a lot of us think of, you know, the British Empire trading mostly like the raison d'etre of it being, you know, things like spices and sugar and silk and tea and things that you, you know, that just sound irresistible, right, to to a rich, you know, British classes. But you write that it actually became, began, the British Empire began with salt cod from Newfoundland, (laughs) which doesn't sound quite as exciting to me. No, no, exactly. That's why I started off because it isn't exciting. I mean, the the, mm-hmm. the the quest for for spices and the journey to India and all of those sort of things that's all very exciting and this sort of foreign land you encounter. But actually, the basis for this was laid down by those West Country fishermen who started mm-hmm. going to across the Atlantic on a regular basis. So they'd go in the spring, uh, set up fishing stations on the coast of Newfoundland, fish cod all summer, dry it and cure it with salt and mm-hmm. bring it back. And, the, the, I mean, they partly found the cod because uh, they were looking for a sea route uh, uh, and to the East Indies. And that was one of the way, you know, they kept on exploring which way, which direction would take us to the Indies. And so that's how they came across the cod in, in Newfoundland. And then, of course, it became apparent that this was... Uh, people describe when they first arrived there that you couldn't actually row through the cod. It was, the sea was so thick with cod. Whoa. You couldn't very easily move forward in your own. But, oh, my gosh. And so, you know, it, obviously it was a, 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 a huge resource. And cod was very, very good for... Because it was dry, mm-hmm. you, could keep it, you could feed it to sailors because it would yeah. stay on the ships for a long it's journey, important. or you could feed it to the soldiers, uh, especially the military forces, the Tudor forces in um, Elizabethan um, Ireland who were putting down the rebellions in Ireland were fed on salt cod. And so salt cod became an incredibly useful military food. And also the Mediterranean people, they, they absolutely loved cod. So you oh, could exchange yeah. your cod Bacala. for wine, and the British wanted to drink the wine and the huh. olive oil, and so they found this medium for exchanging. So you found this Newfoundland cod trade set up all kinds of things. It taught them how it, it, it created this fund of people who knew how to navigate the seas and for whom it was quite normal to sail across the Atlantic. It was kind of a scary thing to do at that time. And then it also created this sense that that was a good way to trade, that you got some goods, but you could exchange them for other goods, and it became a network rather than just a two-way exchange. And so right. they learned lots of skills and and. And, um, and folks had an appreciation for wine now from the Mediterranean after trading. Absolutely. And it was called sack 
wine, which I really think is lovely because that's the, the it's a garbled version of what the the Spanish called their not very good wine that they sold for export. So many fascinating connections you've made here. Um, <laughs> there, I I don't even there's so much to talk about, but let's turn to the colonies for a second. Okay. Um, let's talk jambalaya. <laughs> you write how. Um, the African slaves taught South American colonists how to grow rice. And that... Uh, yeah, in, in Carolina, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's based on some very, very uh, careful, good research by two historians, Judith mm-hmm. Carney and Richard Rossimoff. And they demonstrate the way in which African foods stuffs came across the, the um, Atlantic because of the slave trade. And that's amazing. So when the first colonists in South Carolina arrived there, they wanted to actually grow sugar, but sugar won't grow in South Carolina. It's, you know, it's hopeless. So they were looking for a cash crop to make money with. And they had, obviously, they bought slaves. At that point, the West African slave trade was, uh, you know, really at its height. And so a lot of these people, they, they actually, there was an incredibly sophisticated way of growing rice on the West African coast. And you'd make all these dikes and ditches and you'd use, you could, you could um, use the tidal flow of water on tidal rivers to mm-hmm. flood and uh, irrigate the fields. And so they brought that technology over mm. and, t- and they showed the planters how to do this and started, and they, they picked up on the, all of this. They employed slaves who came from that area and, and, started to grow rice and that made South Carolina planters the richest in of all the American colonists they were they were the wealthiest and it basically in effect talk about a cash crop slave, yeah pardon, yeah and the slave trade totally denuded the the labor on the west african coast and so it dies away well, and fades yeah. away so it's kind of they kind of lift up this whole agricultural technology and bring it over and now we have rice Exactly. <laughs> and you have, you know, those boil in the bag. Uh, is it Carolina. Uncle Ben's still oh, we, in Yes, we have Uncle Ben's, and there's Carolina is a popular brand of rice here, too. Yeah. Um, so, on the other hand, New Englanders sort of like to present themselves as free of slave labor. Um, however, you write that they are actually, in, they were incredibly dependent on slave labor in the West Indies. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it... Um, New England, New Englanders, a lot of the people who came to New England, their first settlers, were more middle class than, than other emigrants. And they, they, they were in search of a, the yeoman dream. They wanted to go to America and have their own land mm-hmm. and become independent farmers. Right. So that was the dream. And a lot of them, and then, so when New England finally went through its starvation period, and they struggled along, you know, they couldn't plow the fields and dig up the tree roots and grow wheat because it kept on getting rust and they ended up eating maize which they could regarded as pig food and was kind of embarrassing and so when they finally got through that really difficult period and were more or less self-sufficient in their food mm-hmm. they could actually feed themselves they were very very proud of this but actually what new england was wealth was founded on was exporting timber and um, shingles and uh, tar okay. and salt beef and salt cod, which they were catching uh, by now off off the American coast, and that was all sold to the West Indies, which was growing sugar with mm. slave labor. And then, of course, they got sugar and molasses back. And so, in effect, what happened was that the New England economy became symbiotic with that slave labor. Mm. 
based economy in the West Indies. And so it doesn't look as though there are any slaves supporting New England farmers, but actually their wealth is founded on selling selling goods to people whose whose wealth is founded. And in fact, is founded on slave labor. And if you follow that, you know, there's that expression, follow the money. If you follow the sugar in in the first... Uh, or follow the money in in the first British Empire that's based on the Americas. It almost every, every transaction you can follow it always comes back to sugar. It's always sugar. Wow. Sugar becomes this incredible engine of trade and economy and movement of people, and it's it's quite and sleep. powerful. It's amazing that this little white granules become such a powerful force. <laughs> right, and slave labor, too, it seems. Yeah, always, yeah, slave, yeah. I wonder how relevant that is today when we think that, you know, maybe not our, our wealth is founded on slave labor. Or, you know, people talk a lot about, like, the sweatshops situations yep. and um, migrant workers who are, you know, in all kinds of agricultural industries that are treated almost like slaves. So, Well, you have to think about where's your food grown, mm-hmm. who's growing it, whose land are you exploiting in order to grow it, who's yeah. being denied water. Yeah, it, there's a, a lot of power, you know, it makes you think about yeah. what you're actually if you think about where your food is coming from, how your uh, you as a nation are securing your food supply, this you know it does make you think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and yeah, follow the sugar. That, that's exactly. a new. I'm going to try that. <laughs> I'm going to try <laughs> to attempt it. Um, we have many more topics to cover, from India pale ale to Madeira wine, and so forth. But we're going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude and be right back. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org pets. All right, we're back on Eat Your Words, chatting with author Lizzie Collingham, the author of Taste of Empire. And Lizzie, you are also the author um, of a book called Curry and Uh Taste of War, which I can only imagine are also similarly fascinating yet fun historical um, narrative nonfiction. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. curry is 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 a fun story. It's mm-hmm. um, it, it's it's lovely to look at. I mean, it's about the relationship between the British and India, and how how the the Indian, the British, in a way, appropriate Indian foods. They love Indian food when mm. they first get there. They bring it home, and they do terrible things to it. Actually, <laughs> they they put they they cut corners, and instead of having you know fresh fresh spices all individually ground and roasted yes. and 
as well, they, they invent curry powder, which is kind of just a mix that you keep in the cupboard. It's a kind of industrial food. And um, that they use that in their curries, and curries become this sort of other British kind of spicy casserole instead of a real Indian. And the taste of war is, is a bit more depressing. It's mm. about food as a weapon and a strategic oh weapon in war. And, you know, it's about how, for example, 60% of the Japanese soldiers who are recorded as having died in combat probably died of starvation and malnutrition-related diseases. And so it's those mm. kinds of facts mm-hmm. and figures that I, I explore in that. Wow. Um Let's go back to curry for a second, because I know that that's a dish that many British hold dear as a comfort food and a national dish. Um, and yet, <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned like all the you know aberration or like you know adaptations that um, they've taken the liberty of making with <laughs> the, the traditional versions. Um, what do you call that? Is there a word for when something has been sort of uh, adopted by another culture and then sort of? change beyond recognition? I guess you, I mean, you would, often the term academics would use, they'd say it was appropriated. Appropriated. But that implies something kind of sinister as well. Yeah. And, I mean, in some ways it was kind of sinister. It was typical British to get, you know, march around and take other people's land and other people's food and take it home and then do some terrible things to it. (laughs) In a way, it is an appropriation. But, you know, the same thing happens... Uh, you know, curry changes. Yeah. Indian food change. I mean, curry isn't even an Indian word. No self-respecting Indian would tell you that they're going to eat a curry. I mean, they might use it now, yeah. but they're politely telling us because they know that that's how we think of their right. food. But it's, it, you know, the British said, what are you eating when they arrived in India? And the Portuguese had already picked up, had done the same thing and picked up Indian words. And they, the curry and caril and stuff. And so they started call, and the British picked that up and then Whoops. started calling it curry. Yeah. And so that's how we've come to call Indian food curry. But that's not what Indians think they're eating. They think they're eating the specific dish, you know, a Rogan Josh or dal or whatever. So curry in itself is a kind of a British invention, mm-hmm. just the very time. So, but that happens to foods all the time. It they does. get they picked up, taken somewhere else, and yet, a little bit. And yet um, we know of curry as curry, and then yet we have this kind of skewed perception of Indian food, and many, other do, many others do because of this sort of uh, perception from the British Empire that they had it was, of it. It's about how curry, uh, you know, moves around the the globe. And mm-hmm. um, so <laughs> it often moved, it either moved with the British, so it arrives in Japan with um, on P&O ferries. So that's a kind of British version of curry. And then, that, I mean, in Japan, curry really is the ultimate comfort food. And they sell these weird kind of golden curry dissolved in water. Yep. And that's so. That's a kind of that's t- taking it even further. The British yeah. version of curry powder, and so on. but it also moves with indentured laborers. So, in when slavery ends, is abolished in 1838, and the sugar um, plantations take a terrible hit as a mm-hmm. result. They that they start looking for other forms of labor, and they turn first to Chinese and then to Indian un- uh, landless poor and. Uh, um, export them around the world in return for sort of five five pounds a month or and some food and and, mm-hmm. and, and a place to live they, they they employ them on the sugar plantations and 
So indentured labourers end up in Guyana, in Fiji, in the Caribbean, and they take Indian food around the globe with them. But the point point, often, the British, instead of uh, supplying these people with separate spices, they supply them with curry powder. And so the the way Indian curries turn out in Indian hands in Guyana is this sort of simplified version of Indian food because that's all they've got to work with. So it's an incredibly complicated story. I mean, every meal you... I I used I wrote the book through meals because mm-hmm. every time you take a meal and unpack it and look at how is it possible how is this meal what circumstances came together my food and meals carry such a lot of history in them and so that's why I tried to approach it that way because so this incredibly complex story and process has come down to one thing which you can really relate to you can really see how, this is how it works out in up in these people's lives. Wow, I need to take you around and whenever I'm having a dinner conversation with folks and the topic of cultural appropriation (laughs) comes up and have you kind of chime in, it is very much more, it's not as simple as just saying, you know, this is... This is an interpretation. This is this are so so many reasons behind it that exactly it carries a history mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. within it. And you know, it's. I mean, people talk about, oh, is this an authentic meal that I'm eating? Well, you think, well, if oh. it's in Britain and it's made in by an Indian chef, a Bangladeshi chef, normally um, in an Indian restaurant, it's authentic in those terms. It's authentic to that. It's not mm-hmm. authentic in terms of what that you know people might be eating in Bombay today. But that's. You can't There's so many layers. travel around the world like yeah. that. So many layers of authenticity. Lizzie, I'm curious how you got into this. You're an associate fellow at the University of Warwick. And, um, you know, why food? Why did you decide to kind of study um, food so much in your history? Well, um, I guess studies? I started off as a cultural historian of the mm-hmm. body. So, so I wrote a PhD on the British body in India and how you use your body as a symbol of prestige. And so it's, they're very interesting, the British, when they, when they first arrive in India, they want to fit in and they make themselves as Indian as possible. They wear pajamas, smoke hookers, and they have Indian mistresses and, and children with them. And it's a very different atmosphere. And as time goes on and they become more and more conscious of themselves as civilizers bringing British civilization to India, they become more and more um, fixated on the idea that they should proper British gentlemen and demonstrate British values and they start wearing black suits and mm. eating British food instead of eating their lovely curries. So <laughs> you have this weird thing that the British in India in the end of the 20th century, 19th century rather, uh, wouldn't eat wouldn't put a curry on the table, whereas in back in Britain, oh, people yeah. are saying, oh, a dinner party isn't complete curry on the oh, table. Right, right. So, so the, and that's how I started off. I started off by looking at what happened to the British and what how, and so, mm. and, you know, it led me into food. And from then on, and food is such a good way to get people to see how all kinds of interesting historical processes mm-hmm. work. Yeah. And so I've stuck with food. And it makes you think about things in an unusual way. I never would have thought about the Second World War. I ne- would never have thought that, the, that food and the food supply and the security of a food supply actually pushed Germany and Japan into aggression. And mm-hmm. is one of the... I mean, I'm not, I'm, people often mistake me for thinking that food is the only driving force. That's, I'm not arguing that for a minute, uh-huh. but what I think is that 
food can be a very interesting strand to follow yes. and it shows how much impact uh, it's an uh, often unobserved unnoticed Unnoticed. powerful driving force in history and so that's kind of why i've got interested in it yeah and it's something we engage in every day and sort of take for granted and um, our attitudes around food change so much so i thought it was really interesting and i know we don't have that much time but uh you you uncover the changing attitudes towards sugar um Uh. And at first it was thought of as this perfect food in Britain. And yeah. then and then tides were turned and then it was like this horrible poison. Uh, <laughs> like, we're, well, like where we I are mean, now. Sugar then, is really interesting. So the, the, in humoral theory, if you put sprinkle sugar on bacon and eggs even, mm. it will make it into a, a perfect food for any humor, a, ho- a choleric person, a sanguine okay. person, a melancholic. Any, anybody so it's can a miracle. eat it and they'll be making... Be, be good for you and keep your body in balance. And then they start worrying as more and more sugar comes in, people get gout and corpulent and teeth decay and so on. They start worrying about it. And some 18th century doctors suggest that if you put sugar in a, in a herbal infusion, that's something bitter, mm. it might be a better way of, of imbibing it. And mm. that, I Just think, is how sugar. people came to put sugar in their tea. Ah, makes the medicine go down or the tea. Yeah. And it was... It was yeah. Tea becomes popular, I think. I mean, and, you know, it's difficult to demonstrate this yeah. with, you know, but because it's a, it's a seen as a healthy and r- responsible and good way to eat the sugar, and the British were obsessed with sugar. They loved uh-huh. sugar, you know, of all the Europe. And then sugar becomes very important in the rural laborers' diets and goes into the industrial slums. And, and, you know, industrial revolution is really founded on sugar. Sugar gives mm. uh, workers 15% of their energy. Yes. And that's an enormous that amount. That is important. Yeah, and that diet also is taken, is picked up and taken by the British Empire all around the world. It goes into the, you know, America's industrial cities. Right. That's, everybody eats bread, sugar, sugary tea and and so that's how sugar kind of infiltrates and becomes a basic need what we think of as a basic need and during the second world war it was rationed you know you should have just cut out sugar you didn't (laughs) need sugar but people relied on it so much that the idea was that you had to ration it because they it's become a basic food and now we've got this problem that we rely on it i mean today's teenagers in britain and i'm sure in america too eat the same amount. They eat 15% of their calories come from sugar. Mm-hmm. So it's become this incredibly damaging basic source of energy, which mm-hmm. carries no nutrients. I see so many like parallels to what's going on today. So, I, you know, soda, you could think of that as like a, an empire in its own, the, yeah. you know, going around the world um, for that sugary fix. Oh. Yeah. Well, so much fun, Lizzie. I'm I'm so glad to, that you could join us to speak with uh, to speak with us about all sorts of things. But um, it, it really is a fascinating book, and I hope everyone dives in. It is, you know, it's a fun but a really really fascinating historical account of food. So, everyone, check out Taste of Empire by Lizzie Collingham. And Lizzie, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. All right, and thanks everyone at Heritage Radio. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.